You're listening to The Glimmercast, a podcast at the Glimmerglass Festival where we share an inside look behind opera and musical theater. My name is Charlotte Mascaloni. This year, Glimmerglass is doing things a bit differently. While we normally perform in the Alice Bush Opera Theater, this year we're producing opera in the most ventilated space we could find, the great outdoors with Glimmerglass on the grass. All of our shows this summer run under 90 minutes, and for our first show, Mozart's The Magic Flute, librettist Kelly Rourke has created a new English-language storybook adaptation that puts Zoroastro and a few other notorious characters into the narrator's chair. My name is NJ Aguna, she, her, hers. I'm from Columbia, Maryland. This is my first year at Glimmerglass, and I'm directing The Magic Flute. Hi, this is Eric Owens. I'm a bass baritone. I will be singing the role of Sarastro in the Magic Flute this summer at the Glimmerglass Festival, as well as Ferrando in Il Trovatore. And my pronouns are he, him, and his. If you're not familiar with flute, here's a quick rundown. The Prince Tamino receives a challenge from the Queen of the Night to rescue her daughter, Pamina, who the Queen says was kidnapped by the evil Zoroastro, a priest who leads a temple to the sun. Tamino meets a birdcatcher with a short attention span named Papageno, and as the pair search for Pamina, they discover that all is not as it seems. Well, Kelly and I talked a lot about what we wanted to do and how this would work, and came to the conclusion that we needed to kind of take it out of any time frame that we have, and that way we can also give light to voices that we haven't heard before. I think it's interesting that he can sort of have commentary on what's going on. Here, Mr. Owens is referring to Zoroastro. When he's describing how people are describing him, and he just can say as the storyteller is like, well, that's not quite, that's not quite true. <laughs> you can have these two polar opposites having their say and sort of stepping outside of it and commenting on it, you can maybe find some semblance of humanity that that might not be there in the story. Brian Kulik, who is one of my professors, a great mentor, loves in rehearsals sometimes looking at individual timelines with characters. We're looking at Amina's, we're looking at Tamino's, so we can just see it without any of the interrupting scenes, you know, and we can get up full sense of who they are and what their journey is and what they're trying to achieve, who they were in the beginning versus who they are in the end, so that we can actually mark the change. This version gives voice to a lot of people and we're starting to kind of question parts of the patriarchy from the original material. We're also looking at the hierarchy of characters and essentially we're saying you can't always trust everyone because not everyone has your best interest in hand, it is best for you to seek the knowledge that will serve you, that will help you grow as a person, that will change you for the better. And if we're talking about information that serves us, it might be important to know more about what the Queen of the Night really wants. In her famous Act Two aria, Der Hölle Rache kocht in meinem Herzen, which loosely translates to The Revenge of Hell Burns in My Heart, the Queen demands that Pamina murder Zarastro. Now let's listen to the tune from the aria, performed by Mr. Rutau Mao, the concertmaster of the Glimmerglass Festival Orchestra, and maestro Joseph Colinari, the festival's music director. (laughs) ¶¶ 
know, in the beginning we have Tamino who meets the Queen of the Night and everyone who meets the Queen of the Night with Tamino, we all have the same perception, you know? She's a loving mother. She's trying to save her daughter. We can't falter. And then it is, as we continue on our journey, then Sarastro tells us something differently. And we're like, well, we don't know you from Adam. How can we tell that you're telling the truth? Zarastro is just as complicated as a good guy because no one is ever one thing all the time. You have to find that balance of him being this quote-unquote good guy and maybe see glimpses of him even trying to convince himself of certain things. We come from a loving mom who's just trying to do her best, trying to look out for her child who was kidnapped. That is the information we get in the beginning. She was kidnapped by Sarastro. And we're all like, who's this guy? No, absolutely not. We, we don't like him. And we get to this place where people are praising him. And you know, that is starting to shift parts of our narrative. We also get new information that, um, about Kamina's past. Her father died, didn't give the source of light to his wife, gave it to Sarastro. When he talks about men not knowing revenge and extending the hand of friendship, what does that say about his relationship with the queen? and with her darkness fading away, we step into the light. But where's her, her forgiveness? Queen of the Night's aria is one of the most iconic moments in the magic flute. But what makes something stay with us after the show? Or even for years? Miss Aguna is a teaching artist and an associate writer at Tectonic Theatre Project in New York City, a theatre company that specializes in a technique known as moment work. Moment work is heavily based on creating moments that the audience can remember and attach to. Because we say that theatre opera, most visual media, you create memories with an audience. So you have, you start with the big thoughts and everyone is collecting ideas. You know what I mean? Sometimes in our critique structure at Tectonic, we'll say, okay, what did you love about this moment? What did you see? What did you notice? And then we'll ask, okay, what did you hate? What confused you? <laughs> because we need to know. And like, it just gives everyone agency to own, you know, different parts of it. And they're like, oh, yeah, I really didn't get why that happened. I didn't like it or, you know, and then we can investigate the dissonance or sometimes we'll have, um, we call it the Joe X test. And the Joe X test is like, if some regular Joe was to come off the street, see what you were doing, what would they see? 
Oh, well, you always want someone who's a first time opera goer hearing you sing to not be put off by it. <laughs> you know, you, you, you're, you're hopeful that whatever you're delivering is going to make them want to come back. So you want everyone who comes to have an opening night kind of a feeling and atmosphere and energy, you know, and you have to dig down and dig down deep and, and always have that no matter what's going on with you, you, you want to give the best performance that you possibly can. What are your personal check-ins for when you feel like you've given that opening night energy? If I'm not concerned with things, Eric, if I can completely get lost in the character because the singing is going well and everything is sort of in this wonderful groove, that's always a, that's a great thing. It, it doesn't always happen, but even if you're not, I mean, because there can be instances where, where your voice isn't really cooperating with you on a particular evening, but you still have to turn in a performance. I think it's the right role for me sort of stepping back into singing after having not sung for a while, having not performed for a while. I find this this role singing wise medicine for the voice. It's Mozart giving a singer these these wonderful lines to sing and even though it explores the extremes of my range on the bottom side you know, that part of my voice is still there. And it's written so well. It's not as nearly as difficult as the Queen of the Night, I'd say. But it is still Mozart in it. It requires a certain set of skills that I hope I bring to it. It's just, it's written in a way that just flows so wonderfully. Me being so familiar with the music, I think it's, it's a wonderful thing to be stepping back into this. And it continues to be the role that I've done the most often. So we've got a big season coming up. For our community, it marks over a year since live performance. For Miss Aguna, this is her first time at the festival. I am looking forward to rehearsals and getting back into a rehearsal space with folks. Um, that is my favorite thing. And for Mr. Owens, this summer marks 20 years since his first performance with Glimmerglass. I am looking forward to getting that energy from an audience. We, we miss that because, I mean, it's, it's not a performance without an audience. You know, I mean, we rehearse, you know, and that's a wonderful thing. And there's a lot of exploration going on, but ultimately it's has to be based on a certain generosity, you know, giving to and giving over to. It'll be a different energy, but an energy nonetheless. And, and I've missed that. Thank you so much for listening to the Glimmercast. Once again, my name is Charlotte Mascaloni and I'm your host, editor and producer. Our theme music is produced by Elijah Sokolo. Our graphic design is by Kate Ale. Our communications associate is Mackay Eastman. Our audio engineer is Joel Moraine. And Kelly Rourke is our dramaturg and the librettist behind this adaptation of The Magic Flute. Our director of communications is Brittany Lassavoy. Special thanks to the Glimmerglass office dogs, Maverick, Blue, Maggie, Rome, Pepper, and Stevie. To book your tickets for The Magic Flute, running July 15th to August 17th, visit www.glimmerglass.org or call our box office at 607-547-2255. Remember to follow the Glimmerglass Festival on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. Are we going to be editing this? <laughs>
<laughs> okay. <laughs>